Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you doing tonight, Allison? I'm doing well. I'm not doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> They're rhetorical questions. Nobody wants to go into the. <laughs> well, I'm I'm frustrated by a DMCA takedown notice. I'm sure this is a misunderstanding, but it comes from the last podcast on the left, who have been lovely to us. They mentioned Strange Familiars in regards to Flannel Man. In the past, I think they mentioned us a couple of times on the show. Every time they mentioned us has been a big bump for us. I love less podcasts on the left, but we got this DMCA takedown, this, you know, it's like internet copyright infringement thing about the Strange Familiar shirt that we have on our T Public site. It's a, the Strange Familiar's Flannel Man shirt. It's a picture of Flannel Man that I drew with our Strange Familiar's logo on it. It doesn't even say Flannel Man. Not that anybody could copyright Flannel Man or trademark it. I'm sure this is a mistake. I'm sure this is like a bot thing, but it's weird. And I'm really hoping it gets solved because it is my artwork and it's just weird. So if you're out there listening, last podcast, guys, can we fix this? I'd like to fix this. I don't know what to do necessarily. I don't have lawyers. I don't know what hoops to jump through. It seems odd that I have to jump through hoops to get my own artwork and my own podcast artwork back up. So if you could help out, that'd be really nice. On tonight's show, I'm going to be talking with Greg Walter. He's an author, and he saw Bigfoot. I think he saw Bigfoot and then became an author. Some people have a really nice English teacher. <laughs> Some people see Bigfoot. Some people see Bigfoot. No, he has a really interesting Bigfoot sighting. He was by himself in the Northwest, just camping. He was doing some kind of like 60-mile loop hike by himself, and he sees Bigfoot. See, I find it more unbelievable that people would be doing a 60-mile loop hike than Bigfoot existing. <laughs> I think that there's more of a likelihood. I definitely know there's more of a likelihood of me seeing Bigfoot than there is me doing a 60-mile loop hike. Yeah. yeah. And then he talks about some of his research around the phenomenon as well. We'll get to Greg in a minute. Before we do that, I want to thank our patrons. Thank you, patrons. Thank you very much. You're all wonderful human beings, and we could not make Strange Familiars without you. If you like what we do at Strange Familiars and you'd like to get extra content and commercial-free shows, you can become a patron at Patreon. 
It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All right, without further ado, let's get to my talk with Greg. Tonight we're talking to Greg Walter, who has... Oh, sounds like a, quite a bit of experiences, and he's an author as well. How are you doing tonight, Greg? Wonderful. How are you? I'm doing great. So, w- what got you into this stuff? Is Bigfoot your main interest? I know from our messages, you kind of said it was that, but it was also connected to some other kind of ancient knowledge and so forth. So, w- what was your doorway into all this stuff? Well, that's a great way to word it, ancient knowledge. Um, So, I was originally, I moved up to Oregon many, many years ago and fell in love with the great outdoors up there, uh, was in the Coast Guard at the time. So we were doing like stirp and rescue on these river bars and points north or south from where I was stationed. And I loved it so much that I stayed on up there and struggled to make a living. So I dived into several different things. I was also going to school at the time and, you know, working at the state parks, but I got into uh, mushroom picking and especially from the marketing end. And so I learned a lot as far as uh, not only the, the choice edibles, the poisonous ones, also the hallucinogenic ones. And I didn't get much into the hallucinogens other than just knowing what they were and, you know, playing with that world a little bit. You know, enough just to learn some. And then I also got into gold dredging, treasure hunting, uh, uh, using metal detectors. And so within all of that, I went on several backpack trips throughout the region through those years. And I went to a place that I just fell in love with. And it was one of the places that I had originally seen on the first road trip that I did uh, driving north to to report to duty in Oregon. And I decided to, I mean, this is years and years later, decided to write a book based upon these adventures, and I did it under the format of a sci-fi magic realism. I am a historical researcher, uh, primarily around regional history, and I'm also a collector of, of all strange things to collect, is the early Forest Service maps. And so looking for detailed maps of this Pacific Coast region and the the trail building into the road building into and sometimes back to trails again. And so we would get along very well. <laughs> this is, these are things I love to do here. Absolutely. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's interesting because Pennsylvania, that was uh, the birthplace and home of Gifford Pinchot, the father of the Forest Service. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our, one of our uh, close state parks is uh, Pinchot Park. Well, there you go. Yeah. And so the footprint that the Forest Service had on all of this with regards to public lands and, you know, the whole concept of um, the mapping that took place on those public lands and then the history that unfolds, whether it was a settlement or the the resource extraction or, you know, all these different uh, venues that were happening. And so but then within all that, I begin to learn about the Native Americans, both locally and kind of regionally throughout, you know, on the Pacific coast. So that's kind of where I then dived into that piece. And I didn't go into it too very far until I went on this pack trip. 
And the pack trip was done at a time. This was in the mid-90s. I was going through some changes. I was working up in Alaska, and we had a boat almost flip. And I thought, you know, it's like, Lord, there's got to be a better way. At any rate, I then decided to go on this pack trip. And it was in this mountainous area, kind of overlooked by most, if not all. And it was a place where the trails had been either abandoned, probably on purpose, I'm guessing. Uh, the, you know, the tribes kind of encouraged the Forest Service not to maintain these trails, which is always very cool. You know, because you get into these little wild areas and where it's just overlooked, nobody goes in there. There's a profusion of bears. I mean, they're out there in the meadows and they're just, they're just lovely. They're eating the bog onions. And so in the early summer, early to mid summer, you know, you see them pretty regularly. And so, um, so there's a lot of wildlife running around and, you know, so that's not unusual. But what had happened on this trip was, you know, and I described this in the book right at the beginning. I decided to tell my personal story and. Basically, what I wound up doing in this was that it, it was as though I was following in the footsteps of a shaman. And I didn't think of it like that back then. I just thought I was going on this wonderful pack trip. I spent one night in one place. I burned some sage and didn't have a campfire. I was by myself. I didn't have a gun. I did bring a flashlight, a very small one. And I had like a little paring knife with me just for, you know, cutting twine and stuff like this. So I spent that night there, and you can imagine this sage wafting off, and I knew that it was a sacred place. I didn't know to what extent. I didn't really understand it, but I knew that I was in a place that was revered and honored by the tribes, and not just one. Actually, there's like three of them that, that would go up onto these, these higher ridge lines and do medicine, they call it. But at this place, because I remember reading about where they would have these dust devils, and the dust devils would come whipping in, and there'd be three of them, and they would dance and sort of mingle and join and then separate and then mingle again, this kind of weirdness. It was also a place in a contact zone, and so this is where serpentine would meet, like, granitic soils, which was like conifer and things like this, and serpentine was more around. Um, there was incense cedars there. There was a there was an unusual pine called the Jeffrey pine, and then, but this is where you get the serpentine plants that are where most plant species like to be calcium rich and mineral poor. These have adapted to a soil where it's mineral rich and calcium poor. And so as a coevolution over, over many, many, many centuries of these plant systems evolving there. So at any rate, from there, I then went back to my car, kind of re reassembled my pack and took off on this 60 mile loop hike. And I got out to a place that evening where I set down my pack and it was like this open meadow, sort of uh, big, big incense cedars. The whole place permeated with cedar. It was buzzing with life. I mean, there was, you know, it was, this was like early summer. It was on a waxing moon and I went over to the spring because I wanted to get some water and I see this beautiful, it was a, it was a giant salamander. And I had one of these guys as a pet when I was a kid. And it was such a remarkable specimen of the salamander, just, just wonderful fat, you know. And I thanked him for being there and called him the name I used to call my, my salamander when I was a kid. You know, and I think that something 
something happened, but I didn't know it at the time, but I think something said, okay, you're in. Okay, so hold that thought. So at any rate, I set the salamander back down in the spring, and I go the next night, and it's a grueling hike. I only went like maybe four miles, and I had to drop down to this one place, and and um, where there was some unusual uh, cedars there, and then I hiked out to this other place where the trail did a small branch that went out on a whole other ridge line. But I walked out there maybe a hundred yards, and there's this amphitheater, and so I set up my tent. I you know, love the area, but I could see this little game trail going up to the very top of the ridge. Um, nearby, there were some sort of like low peaks that were, you know, they were like the high points. And I got up to the top of this ridge. I see these little tarns, like little ponds, if you will. And I look out over the other side, a whole other drainage out there that's just really big. And you're overlooking, you know, the whole climate Siskiyou area. You know, and the sun was setting. It was It was coming to that time of the thin red line. I go back to my tent site and I walk by this place and it was like a little, I mean, it's like I had to think back on this, you know, but, but I walked by this little place and it was kind of open forest, you know, a little brushy, you know, some dense forest up against, it was like an amphitheater. So it was about maybe you know, a little bit smaller than a football field and it went almost straight up, just little steep sides to it on about three sides. And then where I was camping, there was like some ponds there with these Darlingtonia plants that are endemic to the, uh, to the serpentine environment. Once again, showing that I was on a contact zone again. And in this case, the other contact was daysite. Um, daysite is a, um, it's a type of metavolcanic and it gets into, um, you know, where this is like, it's like an old volcano, if you will, or, you know, parts thereof. And so at any rate, I set up my tent and I'm about to, to throw water over my head. I warm it up on my stove. And I go over to the place where there's a flat rock. I look down and there's a footprint. I went, okay, <laughs> this is cool. And I, I measured it just by using a piece of boot lace, you know, and then I found a piece of charcoal and marked it because I didn't have measuring sticks and, you know, plaster or any of this business. I mean, this was like a bare footprint with a heel kind of curved. And, um, and I thought, wow, Bigfoot, you know, thinking in my head, okay, this is really neat. And then I noticed by my campsite, there was like smeared mud, like as though there were footprints there, like as though there was a struggle and something. I thought it was bear, you know, that the bears were fighting or doing something there, you know, maybe the day before I got there. Mm-hmm. So all of this is running through my head. And the sun is continuing to set, and now it's at that time of the thin red line. Carlos Castaneda writes about this as, you know, tales of power where, you know, you hit that time of power. So, I thought, okay, this is really cool. And the, the moon was rising, but it hadn't come up yet over the rim to be able to expose light into this amphitheater because the amphitheater was kind of facing east. And so the moon was, you know, on its way up. And then that's when it emerged. And this thing, it sounded as though, I mean, all of a sudden I hear this crash, crash, crash. And this thing's in the amphitheater with me. And I don't know how it got there. I I was scratching my head on this. But at any rate, it goes down to, there was an upper pond, and it stops and starts drinking. And I could hear it slurping and slurping and slurping and slurping. And this was, you know, one thirsty dog. <laughs> And so from there, I hear this splash, 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 
crash, 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 stomp, stomp, stomp. So this thing's doing like a semicircle around me. And then finally it emerged. It wasn't in the moonlight, but it was just, it was less dark, you know, because because it was in almost like, you know, solid darkness in the back of this amphitheater. But then I start seeing this shape. And then he looked at me and it was these icy gray eyes that just, I mean, bore right through me. It just froze me. And I had my flashlight in my hand. And I remember looking at it as it just glared at me. And basically, I mean, it was saying, don't even think about it, hmm. was the message I had in my head. Like, don't even put that light on me, pal. And so anyway, now I'm now I'm seeing the shape of this thing. It was very athletic, probably standing eight and a half to nine feet tall, maybe a little taller. I couldn't really tell really well, but it was very strong, very athletic. It wasn't like the kind of frumpy, you know, Sasquatch that was in the, the Patterson-Gimlin. Sure, um, yeah. You know, you know, so this guy looked like he could easily run down a deer at a dead run and kill it with a rock. No problem. And so at any rate, it does this semicircle and then it just kind of descends down, would cross the trail that I walked in on and continue down into this, this rather large canyon that was to the west of me. So. At this time, I mean, I'm just kind of frozen and, you know, my mind's racing. Can we pause and can I ask a few questions here? Sure, sure, sure. So at this point in your life, had you even considered like Bigfoot to be a thing or, you know, other than just something you heard about like here and there? Like, uh, yeah, it was, it was something that I heard about. I did have it on my mind. And, you know, as far as like the drive up there, I'm wondering, God, I wonder if this is going to be one of these, you know, you know, unusual experiences, you know, which is interesting because that builds the stage for what my friend Don described later as a, um, well, you know, did I witness an archetype? Sure. And, yeah, um, yeah. and I, you know, I thought that was an interesting perspective on it, but, you know, my counter to that is, is do archetypes leave footprints? And, um, and so this is my great struggle. Do you, <laughs> you, when you take something, you know, um, ephemeral or, or ethereal or whatever, and that, but they leave footprints and they're very physical, you know, at least they seem to be when they want to be. And then other times maybe not, but that's the big question mark. So how shocked are you? Like, you know, on a scale from one to I might have a heart attack <laughs> when you see well, this. I, was, I mean, if I had to put it at one to ten, I was probably about nine, nine and a half. Wow. Blown away. You yeah, know, um, yeah. yeah. At that moment. And then, you know, that led me to, you know, you know, naturally, I'm up for the next three hours. Sure. You're watching the moon rise up and the moon. Oh, my God. When that thing came up, I mean, it was like a street light. Um, uh, just that strong. And it was right on a full moon. And it was interesting, too, because that month was actually a blue moon. And so where well, there's two moons in one month. Mm -hmm. So then from there, the next day, uh, you know, I would eventually go to sleep. He didn't return. I didn't get any rocks thrown at my tent or sticks thrown at me or, you know, clunked over the head or anything. And so the next morning I got up and I went back up on that ridge. I looked around for footprints and then I went down where there was a lake down on the other side there and I scrambled down 600 feet. And I didn't see any footprints around the lake. There were plenty of places of mud and, you know, like this, but, you know, a couple of deer tracks and that was it. And so I went back to my pack, loaded up and continued on my trip. And I'm just noticing this kind of attunement that I have. 
you know, that it's like I spotted some bears in a meadow and, you know, it was fun because I put down the pack and was almost kind of playing with them. You know, I didn't really get that close to them, but I was just watching them. And they were watching me and I just felt really in tune with them, you know, that that I'm just part of the scenery out there, just like they are. So it was just a really cool feeling. Well, then from there, I continue on the trip. And um, and it was interesting because when I left the area, you know, I, I made it back to my my truck in a few nights, you know, three nights later or so. And when I left the area, I see this little, it, it was this little Martin, you know, hopping across the street or this paved road that I drove in on. And I thought, man, that is really cool. And so in later years, I mean, it was like 10 years after that, they would discover in that place, it was a previously what they thought to be extinct version of the Humboldt Martin. Mm. And, um, and so I thought, okay, this is going right in, like within a few miles of where I saw this thing. You know, and- I have found out of place and rare animals tend to pop up also around these other weird things. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Uh, That's... You know, and it's just testament if for nothing else that you're in a wild place. Yeah, you yeah. Know, that it's just a place untrammeled by man for the most part, or people just don't spend a lot of time there. And so, so at any rate, what became of this was that years later, I would return with friends. Um, we actually ran into these guys from the Society of Cryptozoological Research. And I'm trying to think of his name, but he was... It was um well it's on the tip of my tongue but but he was this guy that um that went in there like three times later and then I read in the paper or I heard from like from like one of the fellows that stayed in touch with me that was in this group that basically he died from an from an um it was like an unexpected and inoperable brain tumor mm. you know that killed him you know and some could speculate that you know that this guy kind of had it coming. Because he wasn't respecting these gods in there. And, you know, in later years, I would also learn that this area was to the native tribe. I mean, this is their church, you know, and in a sense, what we're playing with here is God, um, you know, to them, you know, I mean, this is, this is a huge point to this, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. What happened was it was like eight years, I don't know, six years later, I was in a class and being taught by an elder. And I kind of collared him at lunch and explained, hey, you know, I had this thing happen to me. He was like, well, Greg, you know that the shamans go up to these places and they have prayer spots. And there's certain places that they stop and pray and they've done the sweat. They've they've had to do purification. There's certain ways they approach. Um, it takes them. I mean, this is where they have to go through a lot of training, sometimes decades to learn what they're learning to be able to go up there and they know that they're on the right track when they get to a place and they find a salamander in a spring. Oh, wow. And I, Oh my God, that is so cool. Yeah. You know, and so then in further research, I dug into, you know, the lore and so forth. And what the salamander is, is actually it's, it was what they consider as a water baby, or it was it was one of the little people, but shape shifted into the form of a salamander. Okay, and the little people are 
are such an important component to this because they're the ones that it's kind of like with Bigfoot. We have a conversation about Jesus, but we leave out God and God being the little people, the immortals, you know, and this is so, so integral to the whole thing. Then I dive into the, you know, study of this fortuitously one of my friends that's that serves on a board with me up in southwest oregon you know, he's retired now from the oregon caves but he wrote a book called american elves and it's a um basically it's a bibliography of the little people based on 380 ethnic groups throughout the western hemisphere and so half the book is bibliographic reference and so it's all goes into their creation lore and you know all this kind of stuff and all these iterations of them in all these different tribes but there seems to be common threads in this stuff and it was funny because just last year i was up in the in the cape junction area because i have my clients up there and i I stopped in to visit him and he recounted a story for me that took place up in the it was in mount rainier national park it was about three years ago a friend of his who's a maintenance worker up there was doing some work on like a small engine or something that was in this maintenance shed and and he heard these little footfalls outside there's just been a fresh dusting of snow first snow of the year you know up there not far from i think the paradise lodge and at any rate, he looked out and he sees this thing turn and it, it's freaked. He's completely freaked because this thing stood about two and a half feet tall and it had deer legs and a human body. Wow. You know, like this, like the upper torso, head and arms. Mm-hmm. And this thing just goes, ah, boom, takes off and like this goes down a side gully and disappears, gone. Wow. Yeah. And so that's one of the little people. You know, and it's just it's just I think that these things, when we start talking about this, what I realized in the native lore and some of the things they do and all of this, these are what I'm revealing here. And I probably shouldn't be doing this. Probably going to get a hex thrown on these from somebody because these are like the secrets of the mountains and, you know, these little secret things that are out there. And if you spend enough time, if you're a bow hunter or something like this, if you're gathering mushrooms, you run across these things, whether it's Bigfoot or these little people. It's just a really consider yourself lucky if you get a glimpse of these things. Um, and I think I got to hold one, you know, in the form of the salamander. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I'm just thinking, this is one cool salamander. Yeah, you know? yeah. um, so at any rate, this is kind of what, you know, this is what I base my book on, um, in part, because I feel like, and I've dug into this, and, you know, I can be the very best of Bigfoot skeptics, because we don't have physical evidence, and they're not in the fossil record, or at least scant evidence. There's some right. evidence, but it's, but it's sketchy. Right, right. And But yet, we still have the sightings, which I think 98% of them, like these ones I see on Facebook and so forth, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, I think I can dismiss them from either the guy in the monkey suit or, you know, one hell of a neat looking black bear. <laughs> um, you know, but then, but then you see there's a few of them. And this is the problem with this is that what do you do when it's, when it's legit, you know, and they got a picture of it and so forth. And then the footprints and the footprints, you know, you might well know that, uh, you know, most of those are, you know, bunko, but there was that guy in Texas that catches criminals with their footprints. And, you know, he looked at a whole array of casts and so forth like this. And, you know, he said, you know, 98% of these are 
or just a hoax, but there's two of them. One was from Northern California, and the other one was from, like, I think, Southern British Columbia. He said there's no way that these could be replicated unless the guy was a professional podiatrist, you know, and why would they be so spread apart? And so he's thinking, you know, you, know, you folks out there in the Northwest have something you don't know about. Hmm. And this guy catches criminals in Texas. He doesn't care one way or the other. Right, know? right. So, so an unbiased thought and opinion on this. So this is what led me into this world of that these things can step in and out of our world. That's kind of where um, several things back that up. I mean, like one just recently, right in the news, two events in one day that happened back in early July. One was dealing with the Hadron Collider and this this amazing piece of piece of machinery there in Switzerland that basically they discovered it was a discovery of two new particles and leading us sort of one step closer to to learning more about dimensional theory you know how do these things step in and out of our world and brian green actually does a talk about it but it's done at a microscopic level you know i mean how does something that large pull this off so there's that and then the other one was the whole thing with the james webb telescope and some of the images like just last week they released some more you know we're not far from discovering basically a habitable planet out there mm-hmm. and it's like one step closer um, you know, so I thought that that was, okay, this is cool. Within our lifetimes, we're going to, you know, I think we're going to learn more of this. And then with the book, you know, there's, there's several woo moments in there, but, but basically I just made it follow a theme of story with a protagonist, an antagonist, have a romance, you know, all these elements. But within that, I also tell many aspects of the little people drawn from several of these, you know, around the world. You know, back in your area there in the Catskills, the whole story of Rip Van Winkle, you know, him basically, you know, helping these elves, let's call them, carry this cask of drink. You know, he would dance and so forth, and it would last 20 years, you know, and then he would return to town. And that was where Washington Irving's writing about this, I think, in the early 1800s. And it was interesting because Washington Irving had never visited that area of upstate New York, and yet... Buried in the local Indian lore was, it was a squirrel hunter back, and I think it was a Seneca, I think these were Seneca squirrel hunters, but, but this one guy, he goes out and he basically, he spends a night with a JGO or small people, and that night would last over a year. And I doubt Irving knew about this story, but it kind of just substantiates what that experience was. You know, and the whole fable of it, yet was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's, so it's really fun when you, when we blur the lines of fact and fiction. And, you know, what does that look like when you get into the whole concept of paranormal and which are just complete hoaxes and others are like, hey, wait a minute, this is solid. And so, yeah, it's fun. So you see this creature. Yes. Does your life change from that point on? Like, so you were, you were, you know, essentially an outdoorsman before you'd seen, you know, wildlife Mm -hmm. and so forth. But now you've seen something that most people would tell you doesn't exist. Right. So does your life like literally change from that point? It did as far as my relationship with nature. And, 
you know, there was a Sioux Indian lore on this where it's like the native there just wanted to be able to go finger to finger and touch the Bigfoot. And then he would be blessed or, you know, he'd have this attunement with nature. And I feel like that's what it did for me. One of the things I did in later years was I, um, with my lady friend into my wife, into my ex-wife, but with her in the picture, we became this little powerhouse there at Cape Junction enough to gather business support. And I testified before the Senate subcommittee twice and basically got an expansion on the Oregon Caves National Monument. So that was one saving a lake basin up there, you know, behind the caves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was interesting because the Oregon Caves was the one where that fellow, he was a family therapist that said he had an encounter. And, oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so there is some kind of loose connectors that are, you know, um, you know, whether or not he actually saw the thing or I think he, he testified definitely did, you know, but, um, but it's funny because the family never saw anything and, you know, and, but he comes out with a couple of books and, you know, like this. I think as an obsessed person that I am, you know, especially with collecting something like Forest Service maps, well, I got into gathering the native lore. Hmm. And, you know, there are different dances, photographs, you know, you know, original pictures, you know, things written, maps that show the trails, you know, the tribal routes and stuff like this. And really digging into it and going to like the big institutions like the Bancroft Library, the Smithsonian, uh, the National Archives, and pulling up, you know, information, sketches, stories, diaries, you know, all this kind of early material that, you know, they're like puzzle pieces. And one by one by one, you're putting the pieces together. And that's kind of what the American Elves book did, because now I've gathered several books. There's a side story, you know, the whole story behind the Dark Watchers. And, you know, and these were these, it was like the little people of Big Sur. And as written by Peter Steinbeck, who's the son of John Steinbeck. And it was John Steinbeck's mother, Olive, that would ride a horse. And she was teaching kids at these, at these rural schools throughout like the Santa Lucia mountains and kind of this, this region, you know, this forested uh, region behind uh, Big Sur. And she would reach this one pass and she would leave like, um, some little trinkets or, you know, things like an apple and stuff like this. And then she'd come back on her return trip and there would be this beautiful array of acorns and these feathers all laid out, you know, like this. Well, that was from the dark watchers. And you see, we could dismiss this as kind of like mere flummery. But what was interesting was that in the Spaniards in Spanish California, actually had a name for these and that was Los Vigilantes Oscuros which literally meant the dark watchers Hmm. and so this stuff dates back you know this is when it gets fun when you can you know it's like it's like okay we can we can trace this back beyond us oh yeah yeah and I just use that as an example of where you know these things have a history but yeah did it change me yes it did in mostly good ways I mean you know I'm I'm still pretty obsessive compulsive and you know, I have a collection of forest service maps that number into the thousands. Oh wow. <laughs> God knows what I'm gonna do with these things. <laughs> um, but it's fun, you know, and it's and it's something that it makes me very knowledgeable about the area up there that I've spent I mean, like around the Oregon Caves, I've probably hiked up behind there around 300, 400 times. I mean, going up there sometimes almost daily, but this spread out over the course of about 20 years. And so, yeah, it's a, um, so it was quite an experience. 
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Yeah, and I also write about like a treasure hunt that we did, and that was looking for eight-quart jars of double eagles. And, you know, in any good Bigfoot story, you got to have a treasure buried in this thing somewhere. You know, uh, this, so I, I when when I'm called out to um, a Bigfoot sighting, I do a lot of that locally. I right. One of the questions I ask people is, uh, besides all the normal stuff, at the end of this thing, I would say, okay, where's the buried treasure around here? And I tell you, it's not, it always, it doesn't always take the form of, you know, a treasure chest, but sometimes it right. takes the form of like, well, there was a, a, a silver mine. There's a lost silver mine. No one knows where it is, but it's, you know, supposed to be, you know, somewhere in these woods or, um, you know, there's a, you know, something valuable in the ground, right? It may not be, like I said, it might not be gold or, or silver, but there's right. so often the story of something valuable in the ground. So when you say like a, a treasure store, it's like, well, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's actually within one story of native lore was that if you're a brave warrior and you can go up to one of these things and wrestle him to the ground, no. pin him down, <laughs> you know, that, that basically that Bigfoot would then bestow upon you great wealth. Wow. Mainly like in the form of like dentalia shells, you know, or something like this that, you know, was recognized wealth by the tribes. Wow. And um, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of fun. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't imagine wrestling the thing I saw. No way. Yeah, most times, most of the stories I've heard where people touch them, those are the ones that don't seem to turn out super well. (laughs) Right, right. But the thing that I learned in this was that also for the shaman that approaches these things, or, you know, they're often referred to as doctors, that what they do is they, when they approach and it's that time of the night and they know these things right there, that they sing a song of introduction and i had one tribal elder sing me that song one time or at least part of it you know and i i couldn't remember it but i thought okay this is really cool yeah yeah. Um, and then from there they sing a song seeking knowledge and so the thing that the that the sasquatch or you know this this entity can do for them is it can portend the future and it's mainly around food security like you're not going to have any salmon running next year so uh-huh. uh, plan ahead or there's going to be a blight on the acorns and and so find another food source or you know plan for these little calamities that could cause starvation within the tribe yeah and, um, and that also holds kind of spiritual power for the shaman to the tribe because he's trained enough to be able to go up there and do this and bring back knowledge and so yeah it's a it's a neat connector yeah, and you know, like there was just recently an example in the news where they had a fire up there, and the fire covered fifty thousand plus acres, and basically, then you know, and the firefighters are trying to put lines around it and everything. Well, then uh, a storm comes in, dumps like about two or three inches of rain, and that rain would then you know wash all the ash and everything into the creek, into the river, and so now you've got all this phosphorus 
you know, going into an oxygen-rich river that then displaces the oxygen and kills the fish. And that's the sort of thing that the Sasquatch would actually portend for them, you know, and say, hey, look, you're about to have a calamity happen on your river here. And so plan accordingly. It's as though they bring knowledge. That's why they're called the teachers, or they're, you know, that's also how they're referred to as in, mm-hmm. in certain tribes. This is just something that, you know, because I find like in a lot of these Bigfoot stories and movies and everything like this, they have them as this antagonistic, you know, figure. And, and even, you know, like even the natives use them for that purpose. Um, you know, and there's several examples of that, you know, when in reality to think of him as more of a spiritual, you know, a little more benevolent, you know, something to, to definitely respect, but bringing to help, you know, humanity and, in certain ways. Yeah, I think there may be a measure of uh, you get what you bring. You know, right. if you bring a bunch of fear and, and aggression into the woods, you may get some of that back. Yeah, that's right. It's funny, I teach people about because I have down here this. Um, so I set up a water station for these rattlesnakes, which are another sacred animal to the Serrano Indians here. You know, and and I teach people that, you know, they're very mellow and they're all about defense. And so, you know, it's like, stop scaring the rattlesnakes, you know, because people go, ah, rattlesnake, and they're freaked out. Well, that's going to freak out the rattlesnake, you know, or the coyote or whatever it is, because you're freaked out, mm-hmm. you know, and so they stick up on that vibe. So, yeah, just like what you're saying. It's interesting how, you know, like our ability to interact with nature and, and you know, what does it look like and how do we handle that? Yeah. You know, I know from my own experience, you know, I, I have basically there's a um, Irish monk that I have on the show quite frequently. And he is, talks about how, you know, they handle things in their tradition, similar things, right? The, you know, mm-hmm. spirit contact and so forth. He really um, calmed me down, you know, because we, we were going out to a lot of these places at night. Mm-hmm. You know, I was on edge and he basically said, you know, essentially what I said, like, you're, you're going to get some measure of what you bring to it mm. when you go out there. And my approach ever since has been a lot calmer and I've had a lot more positive experiences because of that. So oh, interesting. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. But now, so to, to you, did, did you ever have an experience with a cryptid of sorts? Yeah, I've had, words. I've had a lot of like just weird things and I can't tell you, <laughs> you know what any of them are were but i've had like uh some really extreme synchronicities i saw something big once but it was so quick and honestly my first impression was it was a moose because <laughs> it was on four legs we don't have moose here <laughs> in pennsylvania so that's impossible but it was moving awkwardly it wasn't moving like a deer or anything and right. uh Followed it for about a half a mile, and I found, uh, stopped in my tracks because there was a deer skull at eye level in the middle of the trail impaled on a branch with a dried flower placed in between its eyes, like where the third eye would be. And uh, it wasn't there. This is private property. No one should be there. It wasn't there two weeks before. That's all I can say. You know, could a person have put it there? Yeah, absolutely. A person could have put it there. But that started a series of things where I would every... Bigfoot call I went on, well, not every, I'd say, but I'd say about 80 plus percent. A Bigfoot call I went on, every paranormal thing I did, I would find skulls and just 
placed just like they were laying there for me. Just every single one for about two and a half years. Just this incredible amount of just skulls, one after another, perfectly clean, sun bleached, one after another. So, But that all started after that day. So, you know, what was that? I can't tell you and I won't say what it was. I don't know what it was, but it was it was big. <laughs> it's bigger than anything that should be in the woods here. Right, right. Yeah, and that's... Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, this is the thing that I find is that, you know, that in studying the native lore, that what happens, I mean, like one of the things that I remember reading is that with these, with these little people or these immortals is that they're usually very sad. And one of the things that makes them sad is that they build a relationship with one of these shamans that might go 50, maybe a hundred years at best. And then the shaman dies and then they have to start all over again uh-huh. and again and again yeah. and again. Yeah it kind of wears them down. And so they become sad because, you know, it's like, imagine having immortality, but then living with the fact that you're the last one standing from everybody that you've ever known. Right. Yeah. And, and that can be very burdensome. Sure. And, yeah. A curse in know, a way. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so it's a, you know, but it is something that, that the thing I've learned is that to keep a wildly open mind about, you know, these things because they come in so many different forms. You know, many are malevolent, some are benevolent. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, and especially in places where at one time that shaman had a relationship with that cryptid or, you know, the little people and like this. And sometimes that carries through the tribes, but other times the tribes get wiped out. And so then it's like these cryptids are still returning to nothing, you know, um, you know, because those native inhabitants are no longer there and they don't build a relationship with, you know, the average rural American campers, you know, but still, you know, at one time or another, they were there and their presence was very heavy, you know, and then throw into that. Could you have a place that has a geologic makeup? And this is kind of what I extrapolate on in the book is that, you know, to have some fun with the fact that, you know, like you could have this matrix that's deep in the ground on these contact zones that basically signals it's like a homing beacon out into the stars that basically could bring these things in. Hmm. And, you know, just to play with that one for a bit. And, you know, and in treasure hunting, there's these things called matrixes and they're you know, they're just a pain in the ass to deal with, but they're out there and they're, they're naturally occurring. And it's not too uncommon to have these things on these contact zones. And, you know, there's, there's all these weird energies and frequencies, you know, that emanate from this stuff. We're still in, you know, very much, you know, like early scientific stages with learning more about these. Yeah. That's kind of what a long-range locator is doing, is that it's finding a target 10 to 20 miles out where you can home in on it and then basically go out there and dig up whatever, you know, whatever's hitting. Sometimes it's a matrix. Sometimes it's, it's like, here comes your gold and silver. Sometimes it's where the gold and silver once was. It was buried there for a hundred years and now it's just a hole with hmm. the dirt because that frequency is still in that dirt. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is one thing about looking for Blackbeard's treasure. You know, the problem with that is that Blackbeard dealt in three principal things, rum, sugar, and slaves. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I mean, anytime those guys got money, they went to, you know, to Tortuga or Port Royal and partying like dogs. Crazy life. Now, does your audience on your show, are they mainly interested, you know, as far as the questions like, are they real and do you believe? This seems to be a common thread. 
Well, I think we've established enough because, you know, we're mostly talking to witnesses every week. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I have a, a very firm rule that we don't tell people what they saw. We let people tell us what they saw. And I was given some advice when I started by a friend who, who was doing this a, a bit longer than me because I was worried. I was like, hey, what if somebody hoaxes me or whatever? He said, hey, it's better to believe five liars than disbelieve one person who's telling the truth. And right. that's where where we tend to fall. So I think the question generally with, with my audience is, the, is not whether they exist, but what are they? I think is, is, is more the question. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because sometimes I feel like, you know, in terms of our, are we talking about the way I heard one author and actually met this guy, there's a movie out called The Dark Divide, and that's Bob Pyle, you know, his story, dealing with him. One time he was our our guest speaker for a dinner, and he talked about how, you know, basically what would be more unusual than as if the big cryptid walked in the room and sat down you know, in the front row here was the fact that this guy got a $250,000 grant from the Guggenheim to study it. Mm. <laughs> but the way he framed the question, I thought was good as far as saying that, you know, do we have a bipedaled anthropoid running around the cutover forests of the Pacific Northwest going unnoticed? You know, is that a yes or a no? You know, and, you know, and he felt it was about 80%. Yes, we do. And I feel like just from what I've gathered and some of the recent books that have come out on this and, and, you know, Ron Moorhead's thing was, was very interesting that, you know, as we learn more in the world of quantum mechanics and the theory of relativity, that these things live in two worlds. And, you know, I played with the whole, you know, they live on a separate planet and traversable wormholes and all this good stuff. But in reality, it fits probably more along the lines of this dimensional theory and how these things come in and out of this, where they learn that ability. You know, are they hybrid aliens? We've yet to discover these things. That's the big question. Like I said, that's the one, especially so here in Pennsylvania, right? Let's take my county. I'm I'm in South Central Pennsylvania, York County. I get plenty of witnesses and they seem to be genuine. For the most part, these people are pretty shook up and they're telling me some really interesting things. And Mm. uh, there's no room for a breeding population here. We don't have any wilderness, you know, true wilderness. Uh, right. We have woods and we have forests, but we don't have any true wilderness here. So there's no room right. for a breeding population here. And yet they're seen yeah. all, all times a year. They're not coming through the area. They're not migrating through. You know, so the, the, the big question is, where are they coming from and where are they going? You know, the interdimensional thing it's a good hypothesis, I think. You know what I mean? I'm so hesitant to say, you know, you know, yeah, that's what it is just because, you know, what do we know? Till we know, we don't know. But I think that's a, is a good hypothesis because that's the huge question again. Like, and we have these trackways, you know, two miles of trackway here in 1978. I talked to the, the guy two miles. They followed it and, uh, it just stopped in the middle of a field. Huh. You know, and and I've heard people say, oh, they turn around and walk backwards in their own tracks. Well, why aren't the tracks messed up? They're tiptoeing now. They're tiptoeing back through their own tracks. No, it just it just ended. The trackway just ended in the middle of a field. 
you know, how do you account for this kind of stuff? It's just there's so much weirdness around it that there has to be something else going on. If they are natural animals, they're the kings of evolution to the point where they have so many evolutionary advantages that they might as well be paranormal. When you have a creature with that many evolutionary advantages, we have to account for that in some way until we can. They might as well be paranormal because they're not like anything else on the planet. Right. And that's what's so interesting. And that's why, you know, with regards to, you know, one of the things I would advise is to um, to go to your local university uh, library and look up what native tribes were there, what language stock did they speak, because that's going to be the lingua franca that that shaman would use to communicate with them. And, you know, and, and I think that this was very universal. You know, it wasn't just, you know, something unique to, to Northern California, Southern Oregon, and, and for that matter, the Pacific Coast. And, you know, and that's kind of where it's a good, it just gives you more insight and, you know, hopefully might even provide a puzzle piece, you know, as to why they named the place out there called Spirit Mountain. Or, right. You know, right. Like this, you know, um, yeah, that might not have been, you know, by accident. Yeah, I mean, because I'm looking up the Delaware, the Iroquoian, um, possible uh, Sinuin, um, you know, yeah, I wonder if, do you know what what the, um, was that the land of the Iroquois? It was, well, they were Susquehannocks here, and they are gone. They're long gone. Okay. But they were very interesting people. They had... uh Paintings of what uh, what the Europeans called devils on their shields, which were hairy mm. hairy things. They themselves were reported to be uh, the average male Susquehannock was reported to be about seven foot tall, very very tall, very athletic, muscular people. But we have lost their language. There's no record of it. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I'm looking here. They said you're in northwestern Pennsylvania, South Central. South Central. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Okay, Tuscarora. No, that's uh, yeah, because it's not far from Seneca. But I think the Seneca was north from, from that. Yeah, the the I think the Susquehannocks were, were vaguely related to the Iroquois, but they didn't they didn't super get along. And the Susquehannocks were such a they were a small tribe, but they were very feared. I think because they were they were so <laughs> big and athletic and so forth, and they kind of kept to this area for a long time. But uh, the Delaware came in, I believe, and you know, like I said, some of the Iroquois came down for a bit and then i'm trying to remember what the um they were sort of adopted into another tribe and i I can't remember the name of that now they were pretty much eliminated as well it's just it's a sad story yeah right it's you know it's a sad story i mean throughout throughout the entire north american continent Mm -hmm. at one place or another at one time or another um you know be it from be it from pathogens or disease or just outright killings yeah so, um, so yeah, it's, now I do see the Lenape, but they are, they are to the West. And so, yeah, I'll keep looking here and see if I can find, see, cause my friend did, he wrote this book based on their language. Mm. And it's cool. And so we're poking around in this. We have a local little person. There's a little hairy person that has a German name because the German immigrants named it oh, right. when they right. got here. So it's the Alba Twitch, which is Alba's German for elf. And uh-huh. and Twitchen is it's like a German verb. It means to like escape in a gliding motion, which is interesting when people talk about the way these things move. But yeah, so that's that's where the Alba Twitch name came from. But we don't know. We think that's what was on the shields of the Susquehannock. We think it was those little little hairy people, but we don't know, you know, for sure that's what it was. 
Yeah, well, you know, there's a quote. I'll pull this up from my book. It's in chapter 25 or so. Um, and basically what this was from was Ishii. This was written back in, I think, the 1910s. And it just basically says those living in distant worlds could read and know how the people spoke and who were their gods and heroes and what was their way. And Ishii was from central California up in the mountains, like the foothills of the Sierras. Mm-hmm. And there, the whole tribe got wiped out through like the 1880s, 1890s. And he was just a sole survivor. Oh, yeah. I read about him. He just came walking out of the mountains one day, right? Right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he was taken under the arm of uh, Theodore and um, oh, his wife's name. I can't remember her name. But anyways, the Krogers, and they were the head of the anthropology department at the University of California at Berkeley. And so, I mean, how much more fun does it get as far as being an anthropologist and having this Native American show you, no, this is how we make the arrow. No, this is how we make baskets. This is how we caught salmon. You know, you're in it firsthand. You know, that's what Ishii afforded him for the five years he was alive. And then I think he died of tuberculosis, mm. which was fairly common. But yeah, it's just that really struck me as far as, you know, who were their gods and heroes and what was their ways? Um, you know, and so this is where you dive into creation lore. And if you can find any of that, you know, if, if any of that written language or spoken language, I mean, that's one thing about the archive there at the University of California in Berkeley is that they have recordings, sound recordings dating all the way back to about the 1890s, various tribes throughout North America. It's fun because it teaches you the glutterals, the clicks and the, mm-hmm. you know, all the different, all the different sound effects. And this is what, once again, the lingua franca of what would have been communicated to the Sasquatch and even the little people, you know, as far as, as far as whatever interaction might have been happening. Now, some of this I've heard is where they're also, they can speak telepathically. Mm-hmm. And, um, but of course, you know, once again, are they going to speak in that native lore or the native, you know, language? Cause I don't think they know English. It's something that it takes a lot more knowledge. And this is why the training, there was a cool story. This is as a side note, but it was up there in the Squamish nation. And this is just north of Vancouver, British Columbia. And what it was, was that, you know, this area is kind of like a water inlets, mountains, you know, all sort of coastal, you know, fairly low elevation. But basically what it was, was that these, these shamans up there, what they were doing was training these apprentices and they would hand pick a few of the apprentices a few of these apprentices were quite the task and what they would do is basically train them you know and they already had a good grasp of how to live off the land and you know, what to eat and, and I guess how to build shelter and so forth and they just released them into the wild and they would go live out there for years i mean they would probably eventually you know die either starvation or you know whatever the situation was but in the course of those years when they were out there they just went wild Hmm. yeah and you know were they these hairy looking creatures if you will um but the shaman would be able to approach them from time to time and go out there and learn the secrets of the forest and, you know, of, of the wildlands there. So, I mean, that just stopped me in my tracks, you know, when I learned this because of the secrets of the mountains, you know, and that's, that's what these things hold. It's an amazing source of knowledge. Yeah. My two specialty areas are the Klamath Siskiyou area and then the Olympics. Mm. 
have just fallen in love with. You know, if you want the definition of insanity is try to refine my early pack trails in a temperate rainforest. <laughs> Good luck on that one. Um, the only way you really run across them is because of the punching roads. And so that's where they took cedar planks and laid them down in the forest. And that's just testament to how much cedar can withstand. Wow. You know, but other than that, bye. Here goes that trail. In yeah. 10 years. Yeah. You know, um, it's rich in the lore. There's a lot of really cool stuff up there as far as the different tribes and the way they lived on the land. And there's a really cool story. If you ever go into New York City to the American Museum of Natural History, wander into the Northwest Room, and in the back, they have a case there. It's got the skins that were used to represent Buckwoos and Zonaqua. And what it was was that they would do these dances. They were like initiation ceremonies with these younger kids that were going to inherit like a prime clamming area or, or, you know, salmon spot or something like this. And what they would do is Buckwoos and Zonaqua, you know, like when the light was when the firelight was burning down and it was around midnight, these things would appear, grab these kids and drag them screaming off into the woods. You know, and the kids are absolutely freaked out because they're going to get eaten by this horrible, you know, this monster. And they drag them over to this other place where there's a cook fire going on. And, you know, and they're preparing the cook fire and measuring the sticks on how to cook these kids. <laughs> and basically the message to the kids, you know, like they'd allow them to escape somehow. And the kids would escape and get out of there and they'd be chased for a while. And, you know, the thing there is that, you know, they wanted to teach the kids that when you inherit this, you don't just go gamble it off in some stick game or, mm-hmm. you know, do something frivolous with this very valuable inheritance. That was the message. It was kind of like they were the boogeyman, you know, they right, were the Freddy right. Krueger. Yeah. And, um, and the importance that that played, you know, in, in the lore and the culture. <laughs> Pretty good way to do it. But yeah, the algic of the East is another one I want to look at for your area. You know, another one that was interesting, and this is as a bit of a side note, but like the Orang Pandak, and I watched a, a couple of videos on this thing. And now that would be an example of where it is possible that we could have this thing still living out there in the forest, yeah. just highly elusive, yeah. because it's only four feet tall. And this is sort of like the other one was a Homo florencii, um, you know, that were from, I think, I think it was Indonesian Borneo. Because one of the things that happened there is that like they might have been at one time five or six foot tall, you know, natives. But they had to co-evolve down so they could survive. Mm-hmm. And so, and so when you look at like megafauna, you know, um, you know, especially the mega predators, everybody loves a dire wolf and, you know, the short faced bears and all that. Well, the thing that killed them was they lost their food. And so they just couldn't co-evolve. And, you know, bears may have even evolved down so that that way they could adapt to the food supply that was available to them. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But when you think about something like a pandak, you know, that, that makes perfect sense because he's in this, you know, double possible triple canopy rainforest, tropical rainforest in a very remote region. And he's a pretty small guy to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, the puzzle pieces fall into place here. But when you're, when you're looking at somewhere like the Pennsylvania woods and even the Pacific Northwest, I mean, I've heard stories that, well, they live in caves, you know, well, you know, it's like, are you familiar with a grotto? You know, grottos, these are these spelunking clubs 
I mean, these guys, that's all they do is explore caves. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and so why aren't they running across? Well, there goes three Bigfoot we chased out of the cave. Wow, look at all these bones, you know, something. Mm-hmm. You know, and said we're not getting any of that. You know, and like even in our, you know, my favorite Oregon caves, they found so far there was the there was the bones of a grizzly bear. And then there was really cool. It was the bones of a jaguar that dated back, I mean, 14,000 years you know, wow. into the like the late Pleistocene, but no short-faced bears, no, you know, um, you know, nothing too far out, and definitely no Bigfoot, mm-hmm. you know. And I think the natives knew about the caves, but they kind of stayed away from it, you know. I mean, they were around it, but I don't think, you know, there wasn't much evidence of mankind in the cave. And there's other caves around, you know, in the region there in the greater northern California, southern Oregon, but but no evidence of anything. Right. Um, The only exception to that is the Lovelock Cave in Nevada. That was a weird one, you know, where you had the story of those red haired giants that Mm -hmm. were like these cannibals, you know, munching on the Indians. And they eventually, you know, got burned up or, you know, like this. And I guess they had those skulls on display for a time or, you know, some of the skeletal parts. Um, but then they they ditched all that, you yeah. know. And so, is it somewhere buried in the Smithsonian? They have this really cool collection that nobody that nobody gets access to. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's just you know, you know. Once again, you get into the mystery part of this, and you know, it turns into some interesting conjecture. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Well, Greg, what's the name of your book? The name of the book is Ridge Walkers in Two Worlds. Where can people find it? Both on Amazon and also they can, um, I'm willing to share my email, gwalter2017 at Gmail, if they wish to email me and I can send them a signed copy. I'm actually working right now, I'm burning the midnight oil, cleaning up some of the edits. I'm just making it as a faster, better read. The goal in this was that I wanted to write it more aligned with what I would write as a screenplay to make it like a fast action movie. Mm-hmm. Something like, you know, between Avatar and John Carter of Mars. Um, you know, playing in that kind of world. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, just you know, you know, just as a lot of fun. But yeah, I welcome all comments. Um, if people are interested in their area, you know, where to find, you know, because that's what I do is research. And sometimes it's just poking around the right places in these anthropology libraries, you know, to run across this stuff. Greg, thanks so much for sharing your stories. Thank you, thank you very much. Make it a great evening out there. Before we get to our curiosity of the week, I'd like to thank Jason W. for his PayPal donation. Thank you so much, Jason. It's a huge help. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can find a paypal.me link in the show notes for all of our episodes at strangefamiliars.com. This is a curious curiosity. Yeah, it's something different. It is something different. Maybe someone out there is a cigar aficionado. Well, to me, it's just the graphics on it. Like, that's why... The graphics are incredible, yeah. With the cigar I got one for no myself, cigar. and then I bought a couple extra because I was like, everyone will want these. <laughs> yeah, they are really cool. And Again, I, it's got the black, gold, and red. Yeah, that's like one of my favorite color combinations, red, gold, and black. And like that muted old gold kind of look to it. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I think like if you're into uh, like sort of odd fellows stuff, the, the, the traveler portion of it could be sort of seen as... Uh-huh. 
So this is a cigar box label. Would that have gone on? The yeah, it would have gone on the on the box, mm-hmm. which traditionally has had some amazing graphics. Yeah, they've had some. the printing is just really. And I imagine a lot of it's probably German. So those like eighteen mm. hundreds German lithos are just so beautiful. Did and, you look up where these cigars came from? Well, I'm just wondering if they came from Red Lion because Red Lion was the cigar capital of the United States for a time period. Um, it says it's title and design is owned by Haas Brothers. I don't know if Haas Brothers were a local cigar company or not. I mean, most of the time they were, why we find them around here. Mm-hmm. I think the odds are high, but I don't know definitively. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it has the most amazing sort of ornamental, and then it's embossed, and it's just... Yeah, yeah. It's like, really, if, if really you're nice. a fan of Great. graphic design yeah. <laughs> yeah. and Victorian graphic design, you will love this. Yeah. The National Smoke Traveler. Five-cent cigar. It's the leading five-cent cigar. Yeah, the whole reason that we're living in Red Lion to this day is because when my grandfather, his father, decided to come back to the United States, he looked for the place with the highest millionaires per capita, and for a brief window of time, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was Red Lion, Pennsylvania. Now, why was he outside of the United States, Allison? That is a story that has some legalities involved with it. <laughs> and though everyone involved is now deceased. You're not sure you want to share it? not yet. sure I want to share it. Okay. Doesn't everybody have some relatives that spend some time in Canada because they couldn't live in the United States for a while? <laughs> <laughs> no one was dodging the draft, we'll say that. Much. Yeah, it wasn't a draft dodging situation. It wasn't a horse thievery. No one robbed a bank? No. No one was murdered? No, there's no foul play. In fact, I'd say... A good deal of people were happier that my relatives were in town. <laughs> Previous to them being... Previous them to them having to leave. Yeah. If you're familiar with the song Darling Cora, <laughs> it's pretty much that, there you th- go. that story. There you go. So I will put an image of this cigar box label in the show notes. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase that and other curiosities of the week. Also at Etsy, copies of my books... Strange Familiars t-shirts. We have the Awoken Tree t-shirt in classic blue and glow-in-the-dark. I believe we still have all sizes in both colors right now, small through 3X. You can get my artwork there, originals and prints, Strange Familiars stickers, patches, and more. Go ahead and check it out. Our shop name on Etsy is Lost Grave. But if you type in Strange Familiars, you'll see our stuff come up. While you're on Etsy, check out our friends at... Karmic Garden and Chad Shop is Ruck Rabbit Outdoors. Chad and company are running a knife sale at their Ruck Rabbit Outdoors Etsy shop. 10% off knives until December 15th. So make sure to check that out. And if you're in need of comic books or anything comic related for Christmas, please check out Riverbend Comics. Yes. Riverbendcomics.com for all your comic needs. I've reduced the price of the Department of Truth 15 variant cover that I did the cover for. I've reduced the price of that on our Etsy to match the pricing at Riverbend as well. Again, if you're buying other uh, comics, pick it up there. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy for people to get anything at Riverbend. Riverbend carries my books as well. I'm happy for you to get them at Riverbend, get them from us, get them from Amazon, wherever. As long as you get them. <laughs> That's the important thing. Anything else to report, Allison? Not that I'm aware of. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back soon with more Strange Familiars.
Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more or purchase music by Stone Breath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. I believe this coming Friday is another Bandcamp Friday. That means artists get all the money. Bandcamp doesn't take a share. So it'd be a great time to check out some Stone Breath stuff and support us on Bandcamp. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. You can join the Strange Familiars gathering group there. We're on Instagram at strangefamiliars, one word. And you can find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.